This is the DevHops Podcast, the show where ideas about software development, testing, and IT operations flow freely. I'm your host, Noel Wurst, the content managing editor and the human voice behind our social media efforts here at SkyTap. This week, I had the chance to sit down with our own galactic head of product marketing and regular guest on this show, Jason English, and Justin Vaughn Brown, the global digital transformation lead with CA Technologies. Jason's going to be out at CA World in two weeks, so we wanted to get him sitting down with Justin to talk about what exactly digital transformation or modernization efforts require, what they can deliver to your software delivery processes, and the impact they have on the speed and quality of your deployments. We covered a lot of ground, so let's get right to it. And thank you, as always, for joining us. So, Justin, I was I was curious as to maybe what some of the ways that organiz- that you see organizations today uh, modernizing or transforming uh, their their legacy apps uh, and their and their processes around software uh, delivery, and to maybe what kind of challenges um, uh, that can create, or or what kind of maybe even cultural changes are required. Uh, for those types of initiatives to succeed. Sure, that's a very good point. So I think I think number one, um, the the biggest challenge is is I wouldn't start from here. You know, they have a huge amount of uh, amount of kind of legacy technologies that they can't just immediately get rid of because this would be like you know a heart transplant. Um, even if they're migrating off certain platforms over time, a lot of these. Um, technologies have a huge amount of inherited business logic that still remains very, very relevant. So they just need to get it kind of working better than it has done before. And and this is where, um, you know, Gartner have this concept of bimodal IT, where mm-hmm. you you keep, in a sense, the kind of the lights on, the engines running of, of the core business um, and make sure, you know, you don't have any any outages or delays or, or the, fun, you know, the fundamental infrastructure is still performing. But at the same time, you have a kind of a mode two area which is your innovation engine, which goes out and seeks new ways of doing things, um, brings in um, truly creative approaches and processes. And over time, that becomes kind of normalized and industrialized. And then it becomes not so much mode one, but it becomes part of what we do every day. It becomes part of, part of the core. So over time, um, the, the organization itself, in the way it just generally does its day-to-day you know, activities, the way they're carried out, becomes more contemporary, becomes more modernized, but it does it through this kind of processes of, of, of osmosis, through this mode two model, where it's picking and experimenting in, in new approaches. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good approach, Justin. I mean, I think we're looking at bimodal IT as basically, if you have these you know, hardened, important systems that are running the business, you you don't want to interfere with that ongoing operation, obviously, and you want to position yourself to be able to to deliver some new functionality to meet some customer needs. And, you know, that can be really hard to do. And I think a lot of, uh, I think that's why it's sort of a newer term because a lot of companies have kind of uh, treated the two, the, those two items as uh, separate goals, right? Now, what we're looking at is the ability to kind of unwind uh, functionality from uh, those core systems so that you can actually make changes when you need new functionality. So if it's to meet a certain uh, customer service need or, or to add a new logistics module, for instance, you have to be able to have that you know, existing technology in a safe place and also unwind that in order to do innovation on top of it. 
And it's not just a matter of having, I mean, obviously we like having environments as a service in the cloud to do that sort of thing. But a lot of it has to do with really how the business is incenting the people to work together and make this happen in a safe way so that they both have the, the shared goal, right? Uh, that's kind of the cultural side of it. Exactly. And this is one, one point I made in a, in a bimodal IT article recently was that you, you can't just have folks in, in mode one feeling that um, either their job's threatened or that they're in the dull, unexciting part of the business, that they want to feel still that they're relevant. And this is where, for example, service virtualization has a great play in terms of increasing and improving um, mainframe dev test environment availability. So you don't have those restrictions and constraints. Uh, the mainframe side of the business isn't seen as holding up innovation or, or parallel app development and so forth. And, and to your point as well, um, Jason, I think you know the, the availability of these environments on demand is, is also helping as well. And it's, it's that flexibility and agility that, for example, you know, I was at Gartner Orlando a few weeks ago, and this was a very, very strong topic that came up, the, the ability of the organization to spin up and create those environments and move and adapt to changing market dynamics is, is super important. So, Justin, I read an interview you did earlier this year where uh, you, you asked your guests for some good starting points for embarking on, you know, on, on any you know, large-scale digital transformation. And, and your, your guest said to, uh, that you really need to define early on what digital success looks like. Um, so I really enjoyed that a lot because I, I wrote something recently about that exact same concept. But for something like bimodal IT where you have these two different groups, can that be difficult to kind of assign success um, you know, company-wide where, where you get these teams that are collaborating and working together to both be working towards a common goal if they're, you know, trying to innovate two different types of systems? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the challenges that you have there is that fundamentally, you know, the, the classic mode one group are tasked on, on minimal downtime, minimal disruption, and mm -hmm. yet the mode two crew who are primarily driving ahead with more of a DevOps approach, trying to work with the operations folks and and push together a new way of, of, of working is is to release those applications quickly to have a, uh, a faster deployment velocity and so the, the, quite often they have fundamentally different goals it, you know if you come to the end of a quarter you can have one group that are objectivized on minimal downtime and, and zero outages so they won't want that major app to be released and yet you could have a hotshot dev team who's screaming to have an app release because it's super important for the business mm. and they're objectivized on having that live and this is where you do need some management direction to bring everyone together to have those common goals and be measured all against those and and have far more open communication and transparency around you know, what's not working for example without that kind of finger pointing or blaming um, which which is one of the big barriers because people can manipulate you know, data and information to their own advantage or to protect themselves. But if you have this environment and culture which says, we're going to put everything on the table, we're not going to blame anyone, we're going to just get to the root cause of an issue, you know, that, that's, that's far, far more healthier um, place to work in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do also with kind of knowing, is maintaining a status basically of knowing where the other team is in their uh, life cycle. So whether that's a matter of, um, coordinating the schedules or just even having a snapshot of that environment and then exactly what's happening to that environment at, at that exact time, right? So as changes are being made, I always have something I should be able to refer back to that tells me what the last good known condition was, right, for that 
for that new feature to be released? Or, or where did this impact start to arise that I can share between a development and a test team and then to IT ops in case there's you know something new introduced? Uh, another aspect of it, just from a technology perspective, is really um, a lot of it's not just the software that's being developed, it's configuration changes, and that's almost that's another half of the whole process, right? That's what it takes to bring IT ops to the table is to really understand the impact of how uh, the systems are configured and, and deployed, and not just the features that we're introducing, but what, what impact does that have on the overall uh, technology footprint that's out there. Completely agree. It's that kind of audit history and governance, which I think is going to be increasingly important if we look into next year as, as DevOps as an approach or a methodology is is gaining more ground, is that you're going to have more and more teams you know, taking these approaches, being a bit kind of more open and flexible in the ways they work, yet that doesn't you know, negate the, the need for that traceability and auditability of you know, what was released, who approved it at which stage, and who finally pushed the button and said, yes, we go live. And, you know, particularly in the area of banking, for example, or generally financial services, you're always, you know, uh, one day away potentially from, from an auditor uh, coming back to say, well, where is the paperwork, where is the documentation relating to this decision? And if you can immediately, you know, provision or deliver it and, and show that full audit trail, that puts you in a lot stronger position. Completely agree, Jason. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> you brought up uh, service virtualization earlier uh, uh, on the call here. Um, it's an area that we spend a lot of time talking about, and it's interesting. There, there's definitely still a lot of companies that are just now beginning to look into it, but I think that's probably yet the result of the fact that we've got a lot of you know very major, large organizations who have really introduced service virtualization into their, their testing efforts, and it's allowing them to test a lot sooner, um, and, but at the same time allowing them to test against systems that you know, are either very difficult to access or, you know, impossible to access at all. And there's been some, you know, just some really cool things that, that testers in particular have been able to do with, with that technology. I, I completely agree. And this, I think what we're seeing now with service virtualization is, is almost a case where at the very beginning you had to persuade people that this thing was, you know, it, was, it seems so amazing, but it does actually work. Mm -hmm. and, and it felt kind of in a way that, um, you know, people were not only wanting to see that, to use an analogy, someone took a parachute, jumped out of the plane and survived. But they want to see that you know, most of the folks in the plane already have jumped out with the parachute and survived. And not only that, they've just got back in another plane and went back up again and did the, did the skydive once right. more. So, so they want that extra, extra assurance that it's going to work. But I, th I think now we have such a, a huge bank of references in that area uh, around the globe with, with some major, major names that, you know, such as Nordstrom, um, that are, 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 you know, relying on CA service virtualization to deliver this um, ability to have parallel development tracks and so forth, that it is now reaching a, a much higher level of maturity. And I think the combination now um, with the ability of SkyTap to provide this kind of um, overall um, environment as a service takes that value add and makes it kind of a one plus one equals three it adds so much more as well i mean perhaps jason you want to just expand in terms of the integration points that skytap offers yeah it's particularly interesting um especially as i've been talking to different customers now and some of them have almost uh environments full of virtual services that mirror almost every aspect of the system and if you do it to such a high degree of fidelity that you're basically creating another 
uh, work center for yourself, then then maybe you're trying to put too much logic into the service virtualization itself. Um, the best use of it is obviously when you're cordoning off things that you don't have access to or where you need a specific set of responses. And those are what you include into your environments. And it helps you kind of separate yourself from everything that you're developing or testing that's out of scope for you. And then in that environment, you want to have everything that you directly have impact on or control over. So if it's if the data is something you should have access to, then that should actually be present as an actual system, same with an application and the code that goes into the application. So all of that works in, in SkyTap, for instance, you would basically just have, uh, you would have an environment, it would represent, it could represent as much of uh, your production-like environment as you need, but you would have virtual services standing in for various items that aren't available or that are third-party items or things like data virtualization that kind of fulfill the need for secure test data or things that you shouldn't have access to. And then you use that kind of as your center of excellence for saying, okay, I'm going to have release automation driving releases into this system and I'm going to you know, coordinate that. And that's kind of the back end for DevOps as we see it. Now, you know, as a process, you know, we could go all day on this because, I mean, you were there, Justin, we, uh, we put out a book on it even. And you know, yeah. there's many different ways to kind of apply uh, flavors of service virtualization for sure. Yeah, very good point. Thanks, Jason. Uh, then the last question that I had, um, we've kind of been talking about, you know, the, the, the need for access to these, you know, to w whether it's to these uh, systems under test or it's in environments on demand, uh, the need to have these things when they're needed. Um, I read another recent piece of yours, Justin, that where you talked about the relationship between uh, DevOps in particular and open source software, and it kind of reminded me about the fact that that all of these things are, you know, that you have these disruptive, you know, transformative, you know, digital transformations or modernizations that are coming in and changing the way that software is being developed and the, the cultures that surround those, but that at the same time, that that one way to kind of, um, I guess, maybe make those transformations a little easier is by still letting people work with the tools that they're used to working with, whether it's, you know, open source software or just existing tools that they already had in place, um, and giving people access to the, to, to the things they need when they need them, that, that that's going to, I guess, greatly, uh, I guess, lessen the blow of, of changes this big. I, I completely agree. I think this is, yeah, we, um, we actually had a paper that was written by um, the analyst firm Freeform Dynamics um, a few months ago on this very topic of, of how, it's great that you know, open source, source tools have been um, wholeheartedly almost endorsed and approved by many in the DevOps community, and there are some really, really good technologies out there that people are using to good effect. The, the couple of challenges that kind of can sometimes happen with that is that you, you can get folks who, who become kind of expert in kind of scripting, creating, um, you know, certain, um, you know, uh, recipes, so to speak, in terms of how, how they're creating and, and pulling together um, all these all these actions. Uh, but that, that is then becomes dependent on what I would call, you know, the subject matter expert, that, that's someone who knows specifically how to do this. And if they go on vacation or if they're off sick or if they leave the company, that potentially leaves a hole in terms of, you know, how was this set up before, you know, who had that knowledge. And um, the great thing with CA uh, release automation is that you have this kind of unified, overreaching kind of 
a kind of management console that brings together all these multiple technologies into um, you know manifest driven um, deployment engine that you know it uses what we call a kind of a zero touch approach where it's it's, it's maximizing the automation here it's it's using intelligent workflows and it's building that master view across the whole you know release management or, or deployment process irrespective of how many technologies you have and then I think coupled with um, you know what what um, Skytap can offer in terms of you know this kind of what I think you re- referenced Jason as the kind of golden template architectures um, adds you know only even more value to that. Perhaps you'd like to expand on that, Jason. Yeah, I, w- I would say so definitely because you, um, in order to have a DevOps process that's scalable, you don't want it to depend obviously on one subject matter expert. I mean, we we would always say that what a rock dropped on on you right now, right? And I think that uh, obviously the Phoenix project covers that in detail. There's the one expert who tends to run around and do everything, and then um, the rest of the company depends upon that person. They become they become a bottleneck, right? And it's the same with technologies. If you're, I think DevOps by its very nature is conducive to using open source or at least open standards, so that you're open to working with other, integrating with other. Uh, pieces of software from other companies, and and trying to build something that will, you know, work going forward without kind of being locked into a specific process, and um, that's one of the neat things about the, you know, the way that uh, CA release automation works is that it, it really doesn't matter how complicated that deployment is, it's it's codified in something that can be executed, and it's the same way when you take that resulting environment and you clone it um, you know, very rapidly, all the people who are using it don't need to be experts in the entire infrastructure and how those applications are put together. They need to be domain experts in their own space and be able to start contributing immediately without um, that kind of delay, right? So I think it's really uh, interesting how it's come together lately. No, I, I completely agree. And you, you, what you're then doing is depersonalizing the, the application builds kind of deployment release processes. You're make you're making it something that's repeatable, and not 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 down to a particular individual's ability. I think that's absolutely spot on. Well, that is all the time we have today. Thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of the DevOps Podcast. Be sure and check out our previous episodes on the SkyTap Cloud SoundCloud page, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to get the latest updates and new episodes as we release them. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.